Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Find the Bill of Rights on leadersa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Alrighty, it is 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. I'll tell you what, uh, this is such an emotive issue and there are a lot of calls and SMSs. But you know, Friday we've got so many features. What we're going to do is invite some few people and just dedicate, uh, adequate time to this particular discussion. How's that? Next week sometime. Alright. 28 minutes to 10. Good morning to you, Chris. Welcome. Hi, Reedy. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thank you. Very, very well. It's nice to chat to you again. Likewise. Uh, we're getting a lot of SMSs and emails. We can't keep up, uh, Chris. We really cannot keep up with the amount of uh, of calls we're getting and SMSs we're getting and questions that people want you to answer. I saw on Twitter last night that somebody wanted to know, how come you know everything that you know? And I thought, we never can avoid this question. I thought we'd settled it <laughs> two and a half years ago. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the, how do you say it, E. coli, e. coli e, uh, outbreak? Yeah, well, this has got really sort of big across Europe. And towards the end of last month, May, uh, it became apparent that there was some kind of food poisoning outbreak going on, which seemed to be focused on Germany. We're now at the point where more than 2,000 people across many European countries have been afflicted by uh, symptoms of what appears to be a form of E. coli poisoning. E. coli is a common bacterium that we find in, I would say, everybody. But there are different strains or forms of this bacterium which are in the environment, they're in animals, and they're in other people. And they can occasionally get into a person and they trigger various intestinal problems. And what's happening in Europe mm. seems to be a rare strain of this E. coli, E. coli 0104, which has done a bit of genetic mixing and matching. And it's got some genes which are, in fact, 93% of its genes are compatible with a strain of E. coli which causes traveller's diarrhoea in mm. certain parts of Central Africa. But the other 7% of its DNA is a, a combination of genes which include toxin-producing genes which can seriously damage the wall of the intestine, get into the bloodstream, and then they attack the kidneys because they lock onto a certain chemical which is expressed on cells in the kidneys, and this causes kidney failure, and this also causes red blood cells to break down. This, um, this is known as hemolytic uremic syndrome. Mm. And so far, with this number of people being affected, there's obviously some significant source. It's been tracked down to fresh fruit and vegetables, salad items, lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, Oof. that kind of thing. But people don't actually know how the bacterium got onto those items. In other words, where it came from. Initially, Spain was implicated. They've now been put into the clear. The Spanish cucumbers have been cleared. It's good, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, but still leaves a lot of people in Hamburg and other countries now who have had contact 
with these uh, sources of food uh, with symptoms and 17 to 18 people have died. So at the moment it's a detective story going on, no one knows where it came from, possibly it's, it's an environmental source, maybe uh, poorly washed vegetables which were fertilised using manure and it's come out of the gut of a farm animal. Wow, and uh, you're right to say then Chris, it does show some gaps in, uh, food sa- in the food safety system, doesn't it? Yes. Um, I think what's reassuring is that this kind of thing hasn't happened very, very much before. Um, With uh, the intensification of agriculture, um, one would expect this kind of thing to happen more often if protocols weren't being followed. So the fact that it hasn't happened that frequently is kind of reassuring. But at the same time, that's not much um, to to offer somebody who's now got the symptoms of this or has been very unwell because of it. So obviously there will be lessons learned, but we've got to do the molecular detective story now and try and find out where this thing came from and why it has happened. Mm. And uh, Chris, again, mosquitoes, one of the world's deadliest inhabitants, are scientists developing new weapons? Yeah, there's a very nice paper in the journal Nature this week. It's by Stephanie Lynn Turner and her colleagues. Um, she's at the University of California at Riverside. And they have worked out a new chemical or discovered a new chemical mix which appears to be able to blind mosquitoes to the smell of our breath because mosquitoes track down their next blood meal, female mosquitoes this is, because they, they have to lay eggs and so they have a very high protein requirement in their diet and they get that by drinking blood when they're in their egg-laying phase. They find their next meal by following the plume of CO2, carbon dioxide, that we breathe out, and animals as well. And their antennae are equipped with a special structure called a CPA neuron, which registers the CO2 concentration and then fires off pulses of nerve activity to the uh, insect's brain, which helps it to direct its flying upwind or, or up the concentration gradient of carbon dioxide so they can home in on its source and that's how they then track down where we are and then it has bite us. Um, so what this group have done is to test some chemicals uh, looking for substances that might be able to switch off or deactivate that process. The idea being that you could diffuse them into the air and they would blind the mosquitoes to the smell of the person so they wouldn't know where we were so they wouldn't bite us. Mm. And they found one chemical, it's called 2,3-butanedione which actually has a very interesting effect. Um, What they did was to record, from what's called an antennagram, you stick an an electrical probe into the antenna of a mosquito and you squirt various chemicals on. And they found that when this 2,3-butanedione is added to the mosquito's antennae, it causes the nerve cells that are sensitive to CO2, these CPA neurons, to go absolutely nuts. And they fire Mm. off millions and millions of nerve pulses very, very fast, like a machine gun. And it carries on firing off like that. And you'd think, well, that that would attract the mosquito. But actually what happens is that that very, very rapid barrage of nerve information shuts off the response of the mosquito to CO2. So the mosquitoes can't smell anything after that. They cannot smell the CO2. And they then did a practical experiment in some uh, makeshift huts. They, They had a big structure, a sealed structure, and inside they erected two little huts that are similar to what you would find in various bits of Kenya. And in one of the huts, they put a, a source of CO2. In both huts, they put a source of CO2 to attract the mosquitoes. And in mm. one of the huts, they also put a source of this new molecule, 2,3-butanedione. And they registered how many mosquitoes they caught in a mosquito trap in each hut. And the hut with the source of 2,3-butanedione uh, trapped half as many mosquitoes as the one mm. which didn't have that source, suggesting that the, the, what they found in the lab really would translate into practice in nature.
All righty, we're taking your calls now on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Oh, I've got an SMS uh, from Penny. Penny wants to know, Naked Scientist, why do we get black rings under our eyes? It's interesting. We had a question of the week on the Naked Scientist podcast about this recently. So if you go to nakedscientist.com um, forward slash podcast and you look back to a, a show in the last couple of months, you'll see that we did actually answer the question, why do you get dark circles under your eyes? Um, we actually got a guy in Sydney to speculate on this. And his suggestion is that when you get very tired, then you're more likely to secrete various chemicals, including stress hormones like cortisol. And this increases the volume of your circulation, the amount of water going around the bloodstream. And this will make blood vessels become a bit more full. And if they're a bit more full, then they will be more apparent beneath the skin. And the eye, the skin under the eye is very thin. And so you see the blood vessels more there. So those more engorged, congested blood vessels look darker if they're more full. So if they're more full, that's because you're tired. So you get these dark rings. Apparently, you can also get dark rings under your eyes if you sleep on your front because the blood pools under the eyes, stretching out the blood vessels a bit more than if you sleep on your back. And this is why Dolly Parton hasn't mm-hmm. got rings or <laughs> circles under her eyes. Uh, and the other thing uh, in terms of getting rid of them, apart from getting a good night's sleep, apparently hemorrhoid cream can help to shrink them, would mm. you believe? Um, hemorrhoid cream works by shrinking dilated or engorged blood vessels around your bum. So if you smear some hemorrhoid cream, hopefully after you've washed the cap uh, under your eyes, then this may help to shrink the blood vessels under the eyes and therefore make the dark circles go away. (laughs) Okay, Africa, you're naughty, Chris. Um, That story that we talked about, the E. coli... um Outbreak. Somebody sends an SMS, Chris says, I always knew veggies are bad for you. Yeah, fruit and vegetables, terrible for you. They make you live longer, but, you know, terrible. Now, I love, you know, when you go on holiday and stuff, and I, I go to conferences abroad, and they feed you sort of press fodder, there's not a vegetable in sight. And mm. I find I have this awful craving after just a day of that. I can't take it anymore, and I have to go and find some vegetables and yes. fruit to eat, because I just, I just, um, I just don't feel right if I don't eat decent food. That's true. Errol in Norwood. Hi there. Yes, hi. I'll just talk very quickly. I'm just in the car right now. The question is this. The Fukushima crisis, I read on the internet, which was quite astounding, what I read. They said the, the energy radiation given off was the equivalent of 2,000 atom bombs. And each atom bomb had the equivalent power of 33 times that that was dropped in Hiroshima. Is that correct? Hi, Errol. I haven't seen the data from the TEPCO plant who run Fukushima, or did run Fukushima when those reactors were active. So I don't know what, they, what they've actually done to quantify the amount of radiation that may have been released or not. I would be quite surprised if the numbers were as high as that, but if anyone has any up-to-date data on the release, it would be helpful to have that. It's worth bearing in mind, though, that radioactivity isn't an all-or-none thing. It's not, a, it's not a situation where you release some radioactivity and this is a huge threat um, forever, because there are different types of elements that are radioactive, and d- those different elements have different half-lives. In other words, they remain radioactive for different lengths of time. And one of the things that got released was iodine, radioactive iodine. And the element uh, iodine is very common in the environment, so that would potentially be a worry. But the particular isotope of of iodine that was released has a very short half-life of just eight days. So it can be intensely radioactive, but only for a short time. And then it's uh, decaying into something which is safe. So 
I, I don't know is the total is the answer to the total dose, but I, I do know that various things were released of varying intensity of radioactivity. Some very radioactive, but only for, only short lived, and therefore less of a threat than say strontium or cesium, which might hang around for millions of years. Thank you very much, Errol. Sean, please stay on the line. I'm going to take your question right after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. All right, let's go straight to Sean in Kensington. Good morning to you. Yes, good morning, good morning. Mm. Uh, Chris, I want you to know this. Um, when the full moon rises, and in South Africa it's mainly from the south, why is it larger uh, than when it goes on to the uh, north side of the, 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 the Earth? Do you understand that? Uh, I think so. Um, I think this is partly the moon illusion, which I think you're sort of suggesting, aren't you, Sean, where the idea is if you look at the moon directly overhead, uh, why does it appear to be smaller than if you look at the moon on the horizon? Why is the moon apparently much larger when it's first coming up or occasionally it's going down than when it's directly overhead? Um, but I guess you're also asking, um, when it sets again, why does it appear to be smaller than when it first rose? Would that be a correct summary? Exactly, exactly. Okay. I can only tell you why I think it's larger when it's rising and larger when it's setting than it is at when it's at the top of the sky. Um, I don't know why it should appear smaller to you when it's going down on the north side. Maybe someone else can help me out with that one. But the idea of the moon illusion is that because of the way the brain works and our brain works out where things are relative to each other by using depth perception and the fact that we have two eyes and you see a slightly different image coming into each eye, you can therefore work out how far away things are from each other. And when you see the moon on the horizon, you also see superimposed upon it nearby objects, trees and buildings and so on. And so the brain does a little bit of added processing and assumes, well, if the moon is in the same reference frame visually as these other objects and I know how big they are and they're relatively close to me then the moon must be also quite close to me and the brain makes things that are close to you appear bigger and uh, really kind of more important to your visual system than things which are further away. Once it's high up in the sky there are very few visual reference points uh, in the same way as there are close to the ground and therefore the, the moon looks further away because there's nothing else getting in the way of the vision that you're seeing of the moon so the brain therefore assumes it's therefore further away mm -hmm. and it's less significant and therefore makes it smaller why that should be on the north side for you i don't know it might be that there's just less in the visual scene when you see the moon setting and for that reason that the illusion doesn't work so well in that direction for you nice question sean i have an email here from i think it's jabu uh, jabu wants to know what is the scientific definition or explanation for stamina and why is it that one would have more stamina to do one thing and struggle with the other? Hi, Jabu. Well, stamina is really your ability to keep doing something. And you can define stamina as emotional stamina in the sense that if someone has enormous staying power, if they've got to do a task and they could just think, I've had enough of this and go home, or they could stay to the bitter end and do it, there's emotional stamina in that respect. And then there's physical stamina. People who can lift weights or work out at the gym or run a marathon, and some people do that much better, more sustainably and for longer than other people. Why should there be that difference? Well, 
emotionally, this comes down to tough-mindedness, and we know there are certain people who are much better at sticking with things than others. Physically, there are biochemical differences between individuals. There are some biochemical differences which are written into the way uh, that your genes make your body put itself together. So some people have muscles that have very good blood supply. They have certain enzymes that are very good at getting oxygen out of the blood and also storing lots of sugars and glucose in the muscles so they have a good supply of energy. There are other people that acquire some of those characteristics through training. Um, and in some cases, both. So I think that those, that's probably the best answer to that. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We're taking your calls for The Naked Scientist. Let's go to Joan in River Club. Good morning to you, Joan. Morning, Rudy. Morning, mm. Chris. Um, Chris, I've been um, um, unofficially diagnosed as being electro-hypersensitive. About two years ago... Um, a cellular mast went on um, up onto a shopping centre across the road from us, about 55 metres from our house. It looked like a devil's fork. And um, I started getting this um, high-pitched ringing in my ears, which sounded like Christmas beetles. It doesn't stop. But if I go away, like if I go to another town and I'm away from these things, the ringing stops. The moment I come back, the ringing comes back. And then... In March of this year, something sent me into a dizzy spin. I don't know what happened, but I went absolutely crazy. It felt like my head was going to explode. I, I couldn't actually even stay in my house. I took to going sleeping in my car in the garage. I tried to make a helmet out of foil. I, I used about 20 layers of foil. Just I don't even know what possessed me to do that, but I just felt I needed to protect my head. But then everything then started going even worse. I started losing weight. I mean, I lost something like four kilograms in 10 days. And then when I went away, I gained weight. The moment I come back, then I go into a dizzy spin again. Okay, all right. And then the question would be, you want to know uh, that electrosensitivity and why in this area and not when you are in another part of the world. Yes, and I want to know what's happening to me. Why is this happening? And how can I protect myself? Chris? Sounds yeah. like a Hello, very frustrating I'm, thing. Uh, um, yes, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to your frustrations. It sounds like a, a very bad thing for you. Um, this is a really hard one for me to answer because it's very difficult to give someone an answer mm. when you can't meet them and see more of them and also examine them. And if there are symptoms like this going on, then it's important that they're taken seriously and, and major serious things are excluded. So don't put off going to the doctor because you self-diagnose with something. There may be something underlying some of your symptoms and so it's important to go and see someone who may be able to help. In terms of whether radio masts can do this kind of thing, that's a tricky one. Um, radio and microwave masts for mobile phones uh, are emitting radiation. It's coming in the air as non-ionizing radiation. That's what the mobile phone networks and other communications devices are using to talk to the mast and talk to the phone. But the level of radiation you're being exposed to from one of those masts is a fraction of the amount of radiation you'd be exposed to when your own mobile phone handset, say you had one, is up against your ear. So uh, the answer is I'm not really sure why you're having the symptoms that you are. And to a certain extent, it may be down to stress because it's very common when people have a problem like this and uh, there's something in the environment which is upsetting them, then they will focus on those symptoms that they get when they're upset and those symptoms then become worse because they make them feel more stressed and you obsess about them more and this makes you worry about them more and this can have all kinds of problems. It can disturb sleep, it can disturb appetite, this can uh, disturb your psychological well-being. Oh, and of course, when you go away, you're removing the source of stress, your concern about the, the mobile mast 
and not surprisingly you feel a lot better and it might be worth going to talk to someone to see if there is an underlying aspect of, of this or whether there is something physically wrong and, and then you'll get some clear definite answers which will help you to focus on what the underlying cause might be. Okay, good luck to you, Joan. And, uh, yeah, it's very important that uh, she has it looked at because it sounds like a very, very complicated thing and you don't want to risk giving her wrong advice over the phone. Good luck, Joan. Tell us how it goes. Uh, let's go to Jonathan in Bedford View. Hi. Hi, yes. Hi, Chris. Um, mm. My question is more around the brain. How come logic is different according to different people? <laughs> That's a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why is logic one thing for one and one for another? It's a bit like common sense, isn't it? Yeah. What's common sense for one person is not for the other. Um, well, the brain is uh, probably one of the most complicated things that we know exists. Um, there are something like... Uh, it's 10 to the 11, so um, that's 1 followed by 11 zeros, nerve cells in the brain, and each of them makes maybe a 1,000 connections. So there may be a good 10 to the 12, 20 to the 13, 10 to the 14 different connections between brain cells. And those connections between the brain cells are what enable your thought processes. That's how you make decisions, it's how you remember things, by neural networks. And so for some people, they may have configurations of neural networks which are patterned and fashioned by learning, experience and so on and intuition and for others those networks may not be quite so well honed so when somebody sees a set of stimuli because everything we respond to in the environment is just a stimulus when a certain set of stimuli present themselves this can resonate with the neural networks of, of some people's minds and make them see a pattern which the next person may not have rehearsed or experienced before so they may not have that pattern so therefore they find they have to think about it a little bit more to see the, and get the reaction that the person who was already quite tuned into that situation experienced. I know that's a slightly woolly answer, but I think that's probably the best I can do with mm. that one. Well, I'm delighted that uh, logic means different things to different people, Chris, because then I wouldn't have a job if you all had the same reasoning and the same logic. What makes the job is that plurality of voices and the different things that people say. So, hey, keep it coming. I have an SMS here from Gerald. It says, if I take four tablets for four problems, how does the body know where to send each one? Oh, what a terrific question. <laughs> it's a bit like people saying, when I take a headache tablet or I, I take a painkiller, how does it know that my knee is hurting today um, and therefore to act there? Uh, the answer is that it's all down to very clever chemistry. Drugs and molecules that are in tablets work because they have a molecule in them which is a very specific shape. And it's been designed to have that shape so that it will interact with a certain structure which is present on cells in a certain part of the body. So if you take a drug which, for instance, is designed to help people who might have a, a brain problem, for instance, they want to... Uh, improve depression for example then you make a molecule which goes onto nerve cells and selectively nerve cells linked to depression and it blocks up a certain structure on the surface of the cell that removes nerve transmitters the chemicals that nerve cells talk to each other with and if you stop those nerve transmitters being removed their level builds up in the brain a little bit more and that makes people feel better so that's an example of how a molecule which is just the right shape goes to one specific tissue mm. and influences one specific group of cells because those cells have a structure which is the the complementary shape to that drug molecule in other words it's a bit like a glove and a hand so only certain bits of the body have molecules that are that shape therefore the drug will only work on those cells it won't have any effect on other cells in the case of things like painkillers the way they work is that when you have inflammation if you injure a part of your body you produce substances locally in the injured part of the body mm -hmm. which then trigger the inflammatory process when you take the painkiller 
painkillers visit every tissue in the body and wherever they see these chemicals that are being made by the inflammatory process, they inhibit them. Oh. And as those chemicals will only be being made in the part of the body that's affected by inflammation, they will only affect that part of the body. So that's how you get that selectivity. Oh, I love That's my favorite question so far. Uh, thank you very much, Gerald, for sending that. Well, that brings us to the end of our feature with The Naked Scientist. And of course, it will be available for you as a podcast. And we're still counting days. The Naked Scientist will be joining us in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Chris. We'll chat to you next week. Pleasure. Thanks, Rudy. Really. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. Talk at no- Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.